Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CZ189, World Religion, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 299, October the 6th, 1993. This evening, Otto Scott and Mark Rushduni and I will discuss the World Congress or Parliament of Religions held recently. Douglas Murray it was unable to be here this evening. In 1893, at the World's Columbian Exposition held in Chicago, the first World's Congress of Religions was held. Although I believe the current one ran only four days, the first ran from August the 25th to October 15, 1893. Years ago as a student, I picked up a flat volume, The World's Congress of Religions at the World's Columbian Exposition, edited by J.W. Hansen. And it is an interesting example of the effort to bring about a world religion. The first conference was attended by some of the great names of the last century. Some of the names are Lyman Abbott, Sir William Dawson, Professor Henry Drummond, Charles F. Donnelly, uh, Professor G. P. Fisher, and I wonder why he was there, uh, G. S. Goodspeed, the New Testament scholar, Edward Everett Hale, and the list of important names goes on and on. Quite a collection of people. Uh, Some of the great scholars of the day like Philip Schaff and others. Uh, The uh, uh, great Max Muller who dealt with all the religions of the world. And more than I can take time to name all in attendance, all speaking. Every kind of group, almost, was there. Uh, the Catholics were there. Technically, they were not members of the Congress, but they spoke, and a number of their papers are included in this volume. It would have taken a shelf or two of volumes to uh, publish all the papers. But to give you an idea of the groups that were there, Jewish, Jewish women, 
Catholic, Lutheran, Lutheran women, Presbyterian, Congregational, Methodist Episcopal, Reformed Episcopal, Universalist, Unitarian, African Methodist Episcopal, two kinds of Quakers, Cumberland Presbyterian, Adventist, Seventh-day Baptist, Evangelical Association, Wales and International, Istafod, whatever that is, Disciples of Christ, Christian Science, the Swedenborgians, Religion, Religious Unity, Evangelical Alliance, YWCA, and YMCA, a group known simply as Evolutionists, United Brethren in Christ, King's Daughters, German Evangelical Church, Theosophists, Buddhists, Free Religionists, Ethical Culture, Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant, Reformed Church in the U.S., Hindus, the Zoroastrians, the Shintoists, the Confucians, and more. All present at this long congress of world religions. Now, there were clear-cut and strong orthodox voices, but very obviously from the beginning, despite the efforts of the Orthodox among the Protestants and the Catholics to make sure that uh, people understood the only world religion acceptable would be Christianity. The basic thrust was a one world religion in which the term God would be inclusive of something in all faiths. In the current one, which just ended recently, God was completely left out. The Greek Orthodox and most evangelicals boycotted it as a result. Humanism was the basic thrust of the first Congress and totally the thrust of this one. Reading the papers of the First World Congress, if I may take a little longer, was very instructive because everything that we see explicit in our time was implicit then. So that we have seen men working for a long time towards a one-world order, towards a humanistic state, towards a one-world humanistic religion, and much more. I should have added, groups like the feminists were also included and played a rather prominent part in the First World uh, Congress. What do they call themselves? Feminists. Feminists. Yes. It was only with the 60s that they changed the old term to women's lib or women's liberation movement. 
Feminism, of course, began early in the last century. Uh, the Civil War uh, sidetracked it for a while, which embittered the feminists greatly. And they felt that uh, it was a terrible thing that the blacks had been freed from slavery and women were still in bondage. Uh, the Depression ended a great deal of that, but the movement has returned. Well, with that introduction, Otto, would you like to uh, comment on the general subject? Well, I recall reading about this particular Congress from the time I was very young, practically, because it was such a big event. Mm -hmm. And I can only assume that it received an enormous newspaper coverage of the day. Yes. Now, on the second Congress, which just ended recently, there was hardly any mention at all mm -hmm. in the press. Television, of course, never got around to it because television news is restricted to three minutes every 30 minutes. And you can't cover too much in three minutes. Only what they consider the highlights, which usually begins with the people in the White House and then descends quickly to some trivia. But I do remember in this, this I think, relative great attention in 1893 and little attention in 1993 is a sort of a uh, earmark of the decline of religion on the world stage in the century that these two meetings encompass. And I have, and I'm sure you have too, uh, copies of the war between science and religion. Uh, I've forgotten the exact title now. Yes, White, Andrew yes, White. Yes, Andrew White's two volumes. Mm -hmm. And in the 1890s was the, was the decade when most of the clergy was displaced from the colleges and universities that the den denominations had created. Mm -hmm. I think the only outstanding one was Princeton. Yes which lasted until Woodrow Wilson took over. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a big war going on against religion in the 1890s, on the top, mm -hmm. on the university level. Now, since then, religion has been practically banished from the universities. They still have schools of divinity, but nobody pays too much attention to them. They're never quoted. Their meetings are not publicized. Religion, in other words, has been pushed off the intellectual stage yes. in the hundred years since that first Congress. And I think that's a remarkable development. Yes, that, that is uh, a very important one, and I think we ought to come back to that. Mark? Now, what was the purpose of this most recent Congress? They wanted to commemorate the first 
event in 1893 and to celebrate uh, the success of what they had begun at that time. In this uh, 1993 uh, meeting, they issued uh, new commandments which totally left God out. They reduced the ten to four. Four? Yes. Of the, of the uh, Decalogue? Yes. They re- <laughs> <laughs> and they eliminated God and gave uh, to many of uh, the subordinate uh, commandments a totally environmental and humanistic interpretation. And as one commentator observed, having left out God totally, they did not say who was going to enforce the morality. Well, did the Catholics attend the second one, the second meeting? Uh, Probably in the same fashion they did the first. Uh, As as unofficial? uh, Unofficial observers and participants. I see. If the Pope calls the like one, as he has twice, I believe, at Assisi, it's another matter, because... He then sets the agenda. But if someone else sets the agenda, there is no official participation. How the, many of the ones who attended this time? I didn't see enough at, enough press coverage to even figure out who was at, who was attending. But obviously the first one in 1893 was attended by an enormous and diverse body. Now, the second one, I assume, was attended by many uh, less numerous people. I don't know how great the attendance was at this one. At the first, they did have a remarkable group of people, very notable scholars, and uh, a number of uh, Catholic dignitaries, uh, Anglican dignitaries as well. So it was quite a prestigious affair. It did, however, very clearly enunciate the policy. For example, the paper by the Reverend William R. Alger of New York titled The Only Possible Method of Religious Unification of the Human Race. He says, and I quote, The first form of partial unification of the human race is the aesthetic unification. Very interesting. The second step is the scientific unification. The third is the essential. The fourth is the political unification by the establishment of an international code for the settlement of all disputes by reason. The fifth will be the commercial and social the free circulation of all the component items of humanity through the whole of humanity. In other words, they were for open borders so that immigration 
could help make one world and one religion out of all things. It is interesting that this man, the Reverend Mr. Alger, did not list uh, Christianity or religion in these uh, unification uh, steps. And he wanted international law. He called it an international code for the settlement of all disputes by reason as basic to the political unification. Now, I think that's a very interesting statement because he uses the word code, not law. Because the term law very early uh, with the post-Darwinian world was held to be too theological. So codes and statutes, these were the terms that came in because they are man-made. Men create them. They don't claim that they have an eternal validity but then they deny that anything has an eternal validity. So, for example, the theory of Soviet law was that there was no law. There were regulations, there were codes. No law that was always binding and always true. Well, of course, this was a period when the bureaucracy had overcome the monarchy. Yes. The uh, the monarchs of Europe, which were still in office at the time that this meeting was held, had already been, I'm looking for a respectable term, denatured, I guess, uh, gelded by the bureaucracy. The bureaucrats were running Russia and Germany and Britain and all the other empires and monarchies and were in the process of beginning to take over all the universities. Uh, The clergy, still in place in 1893 in most of the major universities, had not yet been swept out of place, but they obviously were in that decade and shortly thereafter. Well, one other very important fact is the uh, deification of democracy that is in the background of so much that they say. Well, that would fit a bureaucracy. Yes. It's no longer, thus saith the Lord. Uh, A handful of speakers made that emphasis. But the Reverend William Alger said, we must arrive at a pure, rational, universal interpretation of all the dogmas of theology. We must interpret every dogma in such a way that it will agree with all other dogmas in a free circulation of the distinctions through the unity. Then the human race can be united on that. Now, this is obviously the oldest dream 
of humanity that everybody should think alike everybody should be the same diversity of thought is anathema to this this sort of approach they don't want any disagreements and yet it's out of the interplay and out of disagreement that progress is achieved. Yes. Sort of a theological rationalization for the Tower of Babel. Same thing. It's a religious Tower of Babel. And what they're doing is they've been destroying uh, the churches that believed in something. They've been undermining the churches. I've heard from somebody just this week in frustration because they couldn't find a church in their rural area that was close to being orthodox. Mm -hmm. They were just getting nonsense Mm -hmm. from the pulpit. And the people didn't believe anything. The new minister didn't believe anything. Mm -hmm. And they were just at a loss as to what to do. And this is what they've done in attempt to build the unity they've destroyed. They've destroyed Christianity for certain. I can't judge... Incidentally, were the Muslims at this most recent Oh, yes, I forgot to mention them. They were very definitely in attendance. About the only thing they left out were the cannibals. (laughs) I'd like to quote uh, the Reverend William Alger one more time because uh, this that he says is implicit in so much, and he is open about it. He said, I don't think it is heresy to say that we must not confine the idea of Christ to the mere historic individual Jesus of Nazareth. To the mere historic individual? Yes. But we must consider that Christ is not merely the individual. He is the completed genus incarnate. He is the absolute generic unity of the human race in manifestation. So he's abstracted Christ. Yes. The unified one world humanity. Turned into a principle. Yes. Who is the Christ. So uh, we must uh, not limit, he goes on to say, our worship of Christ to the mere historical figure of Jesus, but to the perfected humanity that is on its way. You might as well put it into mathematical terms. <laughs> yes. Takes all the blood and the passion out of the faith, mm-hmm. all the reality. Yes. Well, what have they said in this latest one? Has there been any report so far? The reports are that God was totally left out. Totally. Humanity is that. The new God. So that what Alger said, and that's why I quoted him, is what the most recent uh, Congress of Religions uh, has adopted. Their Christ is the human race. In the meantime, Christians are being massacred in Mohammedan countries. Yes. 
of course, that sort of thing is not mentioned. It's the facts of of the world were kept out of the yes. discussion. Yes. So reality doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very old thing. In in uh, James the first, you know, wanted to believe, wanted to sit down with the Pope and settle all <laughs> the, the matters of dispute between the Protestants and the Catholics. And at the same time, all the uh, wars of Europe he wanted to settle, and he wanted to settle face-to-face with the Pope all the national boundaries, much like Woodrow Wilson 400-odd years later. And this, this kind of nonsense keeps resurfacing all the time. The Pope wasn't interested in sitting down with James because England at that time was not that important a country. Well, to give you an idea of that first conference, uh, the Reverend S.J. Nichols uh, of St. Louis what his affiliation was I don't know he says if God were simply a fact of history if he were simply a phenomenon in the past then once found out or once discovered it would remain for all time but since he is a person each age must know and find him for itself Each generation must come to know and find out the living God from the standpoint which it occupies. It is not enough for you and for me that long generations ago men found him and bowed reverently and adored him. In other words, each age must find and define God for themselves. So this relativistic attitude was implicit in a great many of the men at the parliament. They were ready to see a common ground in all religions. Uh, One uh, scholar, for example, J.A.S. Grant of Cairo, Egypt, who apparently was high up in the administration there because he was known as Grant Bay, B-E-Y, meaning he was a ruler, uh, believes that <laughs> Jehovah Elohim in the Hebrew religion would be Osiris Ra in the Egyptian mythology. And so on and on. He went through the religions and insisted on seeing them all as uh, manifestations of a common belief and therefore a common God. Well, we run into this all the time today. Yes. There seems to be a, a an illusion that... The God of Judaism is the same as the God of Christianity, which argues that Christ is unimportant. Yes. Uh, 
the saddest fact of all was that the uh, Mohammedans, the Japanese, the Chinese Buddhists and Confucianists all insisted on the distinctiveness of their faith. But a sizable percentage of the Christians compromised. The Catholic scholars, while maintaining their Catholic orthodoxy, nonetheless, in some instances, soft-pedaled Christ in favor of God and a rational concept of the deity. So the Christians were being uh, gentlemanly and were backing off from anything that might sound dogmatic. There were, as I said, exceptions, and one that was good was the Reverend R.A. Hume of New Haven, uh, Connecticut, who while dealing with, and this is the title of his paper, The Contact of Christian and Hindu Thought, Points of Likeness and of Contrast, uh, said this, Preeminently does the contrast between Christian and Hindu thought appear in God's relation to sin and the sinner. According to philosophical Hinduism, there is no sin or sinner or savior. According to popular Hinduism, sin is mainly a matter of fate. According to Christianity, sin is the only evil in the universe. But it is so evil that God grieves over it, suffers to put it away, and will suffer till it is put away. The revelation of himself and Jesus Christ was preeminently of this character and to this end. To philosophical Hinduism, salvation is passing from the ignorance and illusion of conscious existence through unconsciousness into the infinite. To popular Hinduism, salvation is getting out of trouble into some safe place through merit somehow acquired. To Christianity, salvation is present deliverance from sin and moral union with Christ begun here and to go on forever. This was the clearest statement on sin in the entire conference. Basically, they ducked the issue because it was obviously unpopular with the others. As a result, even though they, in some instances, were ready to state a biblical doctrine of Christ, they didn't confront these ungodly peoples who were there with a fact of sin. I'd like to quote R.A. Hume a little further because his was the truly outstanding paper of 1893. He said to philosophical Hinduism, man is an emanation from the infinite, which in the present stage of existence is the exact result of this emanation in previous stages of existence. 
His moral sense is an illusion, for he cannot sin. To popular Hinduism, man is partially what he is to philosophical Hinduism, determined by fate. Partially, he is thought of as a created being, more or less sinner, more or less sinful, dependent on God for favor or disfavor. And he goes on to say, in Hinduism, caste is ordained of God and is the chief thing in religion. So Hume confronted them with the problem that you cannot deal with the fact of mankind without dealing with the fact of sin, which means a savior is needed. Well, and this, this is where Emerson was caught. Yes. By reading translations from the Hindu, in which Shiva is both the god of destruction and the god of creation. You can get to nirvana, <clears throat> nothingness, or absorption into the deity, either through crime or through virtue. It makes no difference. There's no difference between evil and virtue in Hinduism. You can choose either path. So therefore there's no sin. There's no sin at all in theological terms. There's nothing to be saved from. You go through various incarnations until you finally achieve a union with the Godhead. And this is where beyond good and evil came from in in Western thought. Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, after Emerson to Nietzsche and from Nietzsche to to Germany and we know what it meant in Germany because the high command disregarded all international law in World War One, and in turn the other powers did the same and we cannot say I don't I don't think we can say that the German uh, elite or, or hierarchy was unique The English wasted as many men as the Germans did. No group of Christian rulers should ever have sent as many men to their deaths for no good cause as happened in Western Europe in 1917, 1914 and on. So we could say that Christianity was no longer the governing philosophy of Europe by World War One, And uh, as you pointed out, there was a direct connection from Emerson to Nietzsche and the idea of the Superman to Hitler. Yes. And uh, the horrifying fact to me is that so many, many uh, people who are more or less, mostly less Christian and more or less conservative, mainly less, have idealized Ralph Waldo Emerson as though he represented the greatness of American thinking. Well, they don't read him, for one thing. They take this at second and third and fourth hand. Most of the people that uh, people accept as authorities, they don't read. They don't go into. They don't form opinions on the basis of actual study. One scholar referred to him as the representative American. 
Well, I hope not. The, uh, but the behavior of our generals in the Civil War preceded the behavior of the West in World War I, and for that matter, the behavior of the English in the Boer War, where they put women and children into concentration camps. Now, this, prior to that, the Spaniards put the Cubans into concentration camps, which is one of the uh, subterranean causes, or one of the moral causes, you might say, of the United States war with Spain in 1898. The whole system of Western morality collapsed in the period from 1860 to 1900. By 1900, you had a group of men on the top, men and women, who no longer believed in anything of a spiritual nature, by and large. Well, I think one of the things that uh, marks our time is that celebrities do such strange, weird, absurd, insane things constantly. For instance? Oh, uh, take uh, any of the popular figures and follow them. such as Madonna well, and uh, Michael Jackson and so on. Well, you're really going down, but you could go up a bit. <laughs> uh, the, the whole idea of making homosexuality and lesbianism a fashionable cause, which is done now by our government, seems to me to be worse than anything that Madonna does. Madonna yes. just came off the burlesque stage or out of, the, out of the, an American-style semi-brothel or whatever. Uh, you couldn't expect much more. Street, the street celebrity. But what we're talking about now is what rules Harvard mm-hmm. and Stanford and the State Department and the White House now, what can we say? Well, I think the origin of a lot of that is Ralph Waldo Emerson. Because while Emerson is portrayed for us, as you go through school, I don't know whether they ever mentioned him anymore, but when I went through school, you... Oh, he was one of the saints. He, he was one of the saints. So when I read all the works of Emerson as a student, what struck me was that uh, here was a gross character. Well, he was a man who married an heiress, a sick heiress, knowing that she was going to die, and went through a great court case in order to inherit from her, and then immediately abandoned the clergy because he said he'd lost his faith. As soon as he got the money, yes. he quit the job. He quit the uh, church. And he was a Unitarian pastor. Yes, he became a Unitarian. Well, about a year after his sick, rich wife died, he took some men out to the cemetery and had the coffin dug up because he couldn't remember what she looked like. 
Well, he did that. I have it in the Secret Six. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody called me up and asked me why he did it, and I said, you'll have to ask God. I have no idea. <laughs> because, you know, it was a horrible sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in a state of advanced decomposition. But well, what he really brought in was Hinduism. Yes. And Hinduism is what you're getting now in the New Age movement and in all the rest of this stuff. In... <coughs> who's the actress? <coughs> Shirley MacLaine. In her incarnation. Yes. And so forth. This is, so, this is all Eastern religion. Yes. Well, consider the way he left Unitarianism. Uh, they had done him nothing but good. He was very young, and uh, because of some family connections and friends, he was pushed ahead. Yeah. And uh, he shattered the uh, feelings and expectations of all the people around him when at the Harvard Divinity School Chapel, I believe he was to conduct the communion service, he denounced everything, created a sensation, which is what he wanted to create. Well, he did, he succeeded, and uh, we see a lot of this going on now. The Mormon Church is creating a series of celebrities, women who dissent with its principles yes. and so forth, and with, gosh knows we've certainly seen enough ex-Catholic celebrities Mm -hmm. and ex-Protestant celebrities. Every clergyman who wants to break with his faith is sure to get on the air and sure to get on TV. Mm -hmm. I feel that the World Congress of Religions in 1893 owed a great deal to Emerson. In particular, Hinduism was held in such high esteem by everyone except Hume. Well, there was the, uh, Annie, this was the Annie Besant period. Yes. Uh, this was a period when uh, Hindu spokesmen were appearing in Oxford. And we still have this. These gurus that appear all over the place don't drink anything but Coca-Cola or whatever it is. Their <laughs> formula, the formula of the moment. I'll never get over the uh, Rajnash uh, something or another who used to take 16 or 17 limousines 20 miles to get a Coca-Cola and then come back while all oh, yes, his followers bowed down Shri and Rajneesh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they sow a lot of trouble. Look at the East. Look at the East. Look yes. at the sacrifices, the filth. Look at the horrible practices which are now going back, coming back, burning the brides in order to get another bride. Well, as uh, Hume said, caste, the caste system is basic to Hinduism. And yet the believers in equality turn and worship the believers in the caste system. Yes. And see no inconsistency. That's right. There were people who followed Sri Rajneesh who came out of it who said they were surprised that he, it was so much of it was really fraud. They were surprised. Yes. It, it's it's hard to believe sometimes this, how, how blind people can be. 
when they want to be? Well, we live in an age of propaganda in which attention by the press makes people who don't get attention from the press feel invisible. They feel that they don't count as much. So if they attach themselves to something that has a presence in the press, they feel better. I noticed this years ago and people who had jobs with a large company. They brought up the name of the company as though this, you didn't dare ask them what job they had in the company. But John is with General Electric or Harry is with General Motors or somebody else is with ITT. Or the push phone. Yes, they could, they could be sweeping the floor, but they, there they were, they, they had an identity because of the larger identity and the uh, Rajneesh or whatever he was, these were people who got into the newspapers and, and uh, you have an identity with the group. It's been years since I've heard anybody really identify with the church. The word Christian has come back into the into the language in the last couple of decades. It, it disappeared most of my life. No one said they were a Christian. They said they were a Catholic or a Protestant mm -hmm. or this or that, an Episcopalian. But at least now we're back to being Christians. But I suppose in its own way that's a sign of the decline of the churches. A Japanese speaker at the conference, Kinza Hirai, I think uh, stated the premise of many there and of a great many people since then when he translated two lines of a Japanese ode which read, though there are many roads at the foot of the mountains, yet if the top is reached, the same moon is seen. Uh, in other words, you find God through all the religions. And uh, this type of thinking was very, very uh, much in evidence of that Congress. Well, we were taught that in school. We were taught that there were five uh, cardinal points that all great religions shared. And when I was a boy in school, Christianity, Buddhism, Mohammedanism, and a couple of other things were all, we were all told that they were really basically the same. And of course, that was a lie. There is no God in Buddhism. Yes. The sad part to me was reading papers by some, uh, as for example, Reverend Henry H. Jessup, apparently an Englishman, who uh, saw the world at the end of the last century increasingly manifesting the English presence everywhere and saw the future in terms of the Saxon peoples 
leading the world. It was not too many years later that the decline began. Well, the decline was in full flower. Yes. In 1893, Oscar Wilde, who was not English, was parading around in London society. Yes. And uh, the Saxons had been killed off in England a long time before this fellow spoke. There was another fact that came out, and I think it was very, very clearly stated by... uh, the Reverend uh, Edward Everett Hale. And he must have been pretty elderly by then. Yes. One of the shining lights of New England. And to the core of his being anti-Calvinist. So that if anything comes out badly in the papers, it's Calvinism. And Hale said, and I quote, Augustinianism died with the fact of universal suffrage. What did the vote have to do with it? Because it's uh, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Therefore, Ah. uh, how could you uh, have a God over them determining things when now every man with a vote in his hand determines the destiny of nation. You wonder if he'd ever met people. (laughs) And he went on to say, I speak with perfect confidence in this matter because I know there was not a pulpit in the country that brought forth on that Sunday this old doctrine, which is a doctrine to be preserved in a museum, but not to be paraded at the present day. He's probably turning over in his grave now to know what's happening with the revival of Calvinism. But uh, he went on to say, as for social rights, the statement is very simple. It has been made already. The 20th century will give to every man according to his necessities. It will receive from every every man according to his opportunity. And that will come from the religious life of that century, a life with God for man in heaven. And so on and so forth. Oh, there you know where Woodrow Wilson got this messianic dress. That was the atmosphere of the time. (laughs) A very uh, good observation because... When uh, you reread, as I did, these papers, you're in Wilson's world. I'd like to borrow that. All right. It's uh, horrible reading. I know it is. I know it is. But that's part of the problem of doing research. You have to wade through so much nonsense and mud. Now I would think that the latest meeting of world religions compared to that would be a big subject for any seminary worthy of its name. What this Congress helped to do and what the churches helped do was to make possible the present one with uh, 
no longer the world looking at the conference because they had made themselves irrelevant by cheapening religion. Exactly. I mean, the theology, the queen of the sciences, has fallen completely out of favor, out of discussion. Yes. Most people don't really believe that there is such a subject. Mm -hmm. They don't know enough to even consider it a subject. Yes. Uh, on the way here, Mark and I were discussing the fact that so many intelligent men think stupidly. Yeah. And it's because they don't have a theological perspective. If you don't, you have unlimited possibilities and no rhyme nor reason, no logic possible. I recall vividly, it's one of the most interesting statements I've ever heard. Uh, I used to know, he's been dead a good many years, this professor who had uh, taught genetics at UCLA and uh, later went into research entirely, won 11 international prizes in genetics. And he said it was easy to do so because he had thrown his unbelief and evolution overboard and had become a creationist, six-day creationist. And he said, now I know that God created everything according to its kind, and therefore I don't have a world of infinite possibilities. I can think logically within a given framework. Mm -hmm. I can experiment in terms of a given framework. Mm -hmm. And so I come to conclusions when others are still floundering in a world of infinite possibilities. Mm -hmm. well, and the interesting thing is that he told me that uh, the head of the laboratory where he worked as a researcher told him that uh, his position made sense. Everybody else was trying to do the impossible. Mm. Well, for one thing, theology makes it very evident, very clear, that there are things not only that you do not know, but that you never will know. Yes. And that's that brings you down to earth. Yes. One of the most vitriolic attacks on Dr. Cornelius Van Til, which still continues, so there are people who spew venom at the mention of his name, was his insistence on on the incomprehensibility of God. Absolutely. That God is always consistent, so we can know him truly, but never exhaustively. And so many of these people, religious humanists, want a God whom they can chart totally in their papers. Well, I had a dispute with a very good friend, Martin Salbretti, over Jacob. It wasn't an argument, it was just a difference of opinion in which I said I didn't admire Jacob, I thought he had cheated his brother, and so forth and so on, and I was always puzzled over God's favoritism. Well, he took a different position, 
and I finally said, who are you to approve of God's decisions? <laughs> he doesn't need your approval. I'm saying that it was an incomprehensible decision, and I'll yes. stick with that. <laughs> yes. And we are among his incomprehensible decisions. I feel the same way about my conversion, absolutely. It's not, uh, it's not logical. No. Well. And here you have these logicians who gave away their whole subject. Yes. Look at, look at the fall of the clergy in the world. Yes. Not, not simply here, but in the world since 1893. Mm -hmm. The Hindus are not what they were. They still have I think they still have the caste, but do they have the faith? Mm -hmm. I mean, what is China? What faith does China have? Yes. What faith do the Africans have? You know that the black Africans are interesting because one of the things that caused them to rebel against the white man was World War I. When they found that the white men were killing each other in a fratricidal war, they said the white men do not believe in their religion, in the religion that they taught to us. So they began to lose respect. Well, one of the interesting things, not the nicest thing to mention, uh, was that African troops who were really... Uh, very wild, uncivilized people were brought in and used yes. in World War One. The French and used them in occupation troops in Germany. Yes, and what they did routinely was to uh, go through, and the wounded or the dead didn't make any difference to them. They would castrate them and. Uh, make a necklace for themselves of human testicles to carry back to Africa with them. And uh, the impact of that in Africa was devastating. It prepared the way for the return to barbarism because they no longer saw the... Uh, white man in the same eyes. They had, after all, not only fought and killed him in great numbers, but they had the evidence to prove that they had done so. It was a frightful episode in human history. Evelyn Waugh spoke in one of his books about Africans who were told to bring back the arms of the enemy, and they did, mm -hmm. physically. Well, our time is about over. We have barely scratched the surface, but the one world religion is a concomitant of the one world order. You cannot fight the one world order without attacking the religious premises. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. 
authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.